across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or at the web. VeteransRadio.org is our new URL, VeteransRadio.org. Where we're on the web 24-7, you can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.org. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Tom McMillan. Tom's a lifelong student of history. He has uh, written a book that caught our attention, and we thought, uh, boy, we ought to talk about this a little bit. And it's our flag was still there, talking about the flag that was Fort McHenry <laughs> to the Smithsonian. Sort of, how did how did this thing come about, and how did it become such preserved in the way that it did? Tom, welcome to Veterans Radio. Jim, it's great to be here, and an honor to be to be here. Actually, well, I'm looking Tom, forward to this. Tom comes from a family of uh, men who served, as many uh, did in uh, World War II, uh, but it, he comes at this with uh, kind of an interesting background. As a, as I said, he's a lifelong student of history. Uh, he served on the board of trustees of the Pittsburgh Heinz History Center. He's been on the board of directors of the Friends of Flight 93 National Memorial and the marketing on the marketing committee for the Gettysburg Foundation. And all of that as part of a 43-year career in sports communications, including 25 years as VP of communi- communications for the NHL's Pittsburgh Penguins. So you had this great uh, sports career, but history was always kind of pulling on you, wasn't it? Always, always. And uh, I was either going to be a sports writer or a history teacher coming out of high school. Uh, I ended up in, in sports media communications. It was great. But what I always tell people is for most people, sports is their escape from their regular life. That's what they do to get away from it. When you work in sports, you actually need an escape from it. And history was all history was my sports. History is what I did in my downtime. And so it, the love was always there. And uh, about 10 years ago, I just I had some writing skills and I just decided to start to take a crack at some writing, some history books. And it's been a, it's been a great hobby. Well, this is actually, your, I believe, your third book. Uh, yeah, four, the, fourth. Fourth yeah, book. Two on yeah, one on Flight 93 uh, of September 11th and two on the Battle of Gettysburg. And now this one on, uh, on the Star Spangled Banner. Your professors at Park, uh, Point Park University, where you got your journalism degree, would never have thought 
No. You'd no, be no. such a published author, right? <laughs> <laughs> you fool them sometimes. Thank God. So yeah. so how did it come about that you you came into the idea of I'm going to write about the history of this flag from the War of 1812. Yeah, it was it was a little bit of a roundabout. I'm such a, a Civil War and Gettysburg nerd, and I'd written a book uh, a few years ago about uh, two friends on both sides of the Civil War, Louis Armistead, a Confederate officer, and Winfield Scott Hancock, a Union officer, who were lifelong friends and then fought against each other at Pickett's Charge. And in doing that, I was researching the Armistead family because we tend to, in Civil War people, just tend to focus on the Civil War soldiers. And the Armistead family is, is an, has an illustrious military history. It goes all the way back to 1680. They fought in the Revolutionary War and the French and Indian War. And then George Armistead, Lewis's uncle, was the commander of Fort McHenry during the War of 1812 and, and therefore was the guardian of the original Star-Spangled Banner. And to most people who know the family name and history, Lewis Armistead is the more famous. And I thought, George really should be. And I wanted to look into this story. And as I dug into it, Jim, as you mentioned, I'm a pretty good student of history. I was amazed at how much I didn't know about this story. Well, I, we, I didn't know most of it. And what I knew was a little bit wrong. So I think we always learn. But when you do these projects, especially when you're, you're a professional, it's, it's a hobby. Uh, half the fun is the research and, oh, and learning yeah. as yeah. you write along. So I, I kind of stumbled into it and I thought, wow, no one has written this. I'd seen the flag at the Smithsonian and they tell the story, but I never really appreciated the, the, the magnitude of what it took for that flag, which, which, I mean, it's so important to us because it's why we have our national anthem. That's the flag that he wrote about. It still exists. And I just wanted to tell that story from 1814 basically up until today well it really everybody's knowledge of this sort of stops after oh francis got uh, key wrote the star spangled banger that's the flag it was over fort mchenry in in baltimore uh, during the war of 1812 and end of end of story and, right and exactly that's it that's what i knew so as you sort of stumbled into this uh, about uh, lieutenant colonel george armistead who was the commander at fort mchenry how talk to us like as this unravels how the how the the story unravels with this very large flag by the way yeah yeah yes yeah well i was first of all okay why do we have it and it was george armistead who took command of fort mckendry a year before the battle so in 1813 uh he had a thing for big flags and he, one of the first things he did when he took over, and, and Baltimore is a decent-sized city today. It was the third largest city in the country back then, Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore. This was a very important military site. But the thing he wanted most, he wanted a flag so large the British couldn't help but see it from a distance. That was his quote. And it was so it almost began as a symbol of defiance. Uh, but but also confidence. It was, this is what you're fighting for, boys. You know, I, I thought of it to tie to my sports background. You hear so much of managers and coaches trying to develop a culture in that locker room, a culture for the team. Well, that's the culture that George Armistead was trying to create at Fort McHenry. This is what we're fighting for. And it went to the, the assignment, went to a, a seamstress from Baltimore, not, not Betsy Ross, her name was Mary Pickerskill, and they made two flags. They made a gigantic garrison flag, 30 feet high by 42 feet wide, and a somewhat smaller storm flag, 17 feet high 
25 feet wide, which is also part of the story, because the storm flag would fly during inclement conditions. If the big flag was flying during a rainstorm and got waterlogged, it'd be so heavy, it would snap the flagpole. So this big flag actually flew over Fort McHenry for more than a year before the Battle of Baltimore that we talk about. And this is, uh, you know, one of those things that, you know, he takes the initiative and said, I want this flag that, you know, you can see from a distance. And that translates into everybody could see where the flag was and the fort was, and thus the battle, and thus uh, that Francis Scott Key could see it as well. So that certainly wasn't the intent, but but ultimately became the sort of motivating uh, uh, piece to this uh, national anthem that we sing at every sporting event and every school event uh, uh, that we have. And, and we have there, there's some of the things that are there, there's a slight misconceptions that key was was out key was out on the water during the battle. Imagine being behind these British ships. It was a 25 hour bombardment of this fort. 1500 bombs, 700 rockets. The rockets red streaks to the air. The rockets red glare. Key's out there. He's a lawyer. He's not a military man, but he wasn't really prisoner. He was sent out there. The British. On, on their previous campaign had arrested an elderly doctor and they didn't like some of the things that he did. So the doctor's family hired key to go out and try to negotiate his release and key gets out there. He, he finds the British, they're preparing attack, an attack on Baltimore and he successfully negotiates the doctor's release, but the British say, we can't let you go back in. You know, our plans. So we're going to detain you on your own ship under guard until we win this battle and then we'll let you go so that's why key was out there not really a prisoner but just detained uh, and until then the british were so overconfident that, that they would win the battle so that's why he had such a unique view of this and if you read the anthem and most people don't know there are four verses if you read it from that perspective you can see key is writing about his feelings sequentially during the battle it, it is in sequence i always tell people Francis Scott Key did not sit down to, with the purpose of writing a national anthem. He said, I'm going to write a national anthem someday. He was merely writing about his experiences watching this battle and how he felt and how patriotic he felt when he saw that flag. And it re- although it, was, it became a very patriotic song from the start, it didn't become the, the official national anthem until 1931, so long after Key's death. He would have been surprised, I think, that it became the national anthem. Well, and I think Armistead would have been surprised that what his his big flag would be the source of that and make its way to the national, you know, uh, yeah. museum, the Absolutely. Smithsonian. But but battle flags have often been kept by commanders and troops in a in a reverence mode because it symbolizes the battle. How does how does this flag? not only survive the battle, but but become that piece of fabric yeah. that's got to be kept and memorialized. Well, it was, and I think it had it stayed at Fort McHenry, it probably would have you know, weathered out over the years. But Armistead, it was very important, Armistead, sometime after the battle, and he died in 1818, so he only lived for four more years. He died probably of a heart attack that probably started because of the stress of this battle. But sometime probably a year or two after, he takes the flag down off the flagpole and takes it home as a souvenir. 
Um, the, the family always had this myth that it was presented to him. It wasn't presented to him. He took it. He, he, he appropriated government property. As, as, some, why, as some might say, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's why it survives. It remained in the private possession of the Armistead family for 90 years, three generations, his wife, his daughter, and his grandson, until the grandson in 1907 donated it to the Smithsonian. So to your point, Jim, earlier, you know, they kept it more as once George had passed on, his family family kept it as as their father and grandfather's heirloom. This was his piece. They, I think, they viewed it more that than than a patriotic symbol. Sometimes, and we all talk about this with history. Sometimes in the moment, we don't realize the historic impact of, of an event or an object. It's not until years or even decades later. And I think that happened here. They were keeping it because it was a memory of their father and grandfather. And then over time, they begin to realize that. But really, until it got to the Smithsonian, most people in the country didn't even know it existed. Most people outside of Baltimore did not have an, an idea that the flag itself about which the song was written existed not until it got there and they started publishing some photos in the papers and then there was a surge of visitation did people really realize that this original star spangled banner is still here well and it doesn't get to the Smithsonian until almost 100 years later i mean yeah it is in private uh, possession for what, what something like what 90 years maybe 90 plus years at what point i mean very few things survive 100 years and fabric uh, that's uh, up in the closet or in the attic or down in the basement, you know, uh, doesn't normally make it uh, in right. a very good condition as going forward. Talk a little bit about how the condition of the flag changed over those 90 to 100 well, years. It, yeah, it, it did. The wife and the daughter who had it for a combined 60 years, they kept it in Baltimore and, and they protected it, but they mostly just kept it in a sack. They didn't know how to preserve a flag. But the one thing that's kind of shocking, when you it was 30 feet high by 42 feet wide. When you go to the Smithsonian today, it's 30 by 34. It's eight feet shorter. And sometimes people think that's battle damage. It was not. This, this would seem sacrilegious to us today, but it was very commonplace back then to cut off pieces of a flag and give it to someone as a souvenir. Over time, with battle veterans and their families and Baltimore dignitaries asking for little pieces, the Armistead ladies cut away eight feet of that flag in little pieces. And that's why the edge of it is jagged. That's not battle damage. That's them cutting it away. And I talked to one of the conservators, and, and I was, she must have seen the look on my face. And she said, I know we, seen, we would be aghast if that happened. We would think it was disrespectful. That wasn't the way. It was a different time. That wasn't the way they, they viewed it. So they kept it. They protected it. But they certainly made it smaller. But really, it wasn't it wasn't photographed until 1873 for for 60 years. But it wasn't until it got to the Smithsonian in the early early 1900s that they started doing rehab. There was a significant rehab project in 1907, and then and then just recently, actually about 15 years ago, there was a major eight year rehab project to try to make sure that this very thin, very old, now 209-year-old fabric will exist for many more generations into the future. And and, and I go into uh, some of that. It, it, part of this was, as I was, I was researching, because when you start, Jim, you're not really sure if there's an, I wasn't sure if there was enough information for a book length 
piece on this or was it just a magazine story? But I found so much about what ha- what the flag had to go through and what people had to go through over these 200 years to protect it and keep it. And when you go there, I mean, you look at it, it's, it's so thin and it has holes in it. And one of the stars is cut out and it's jagged on the edges. But it's still there. And one of the things that, that I always remembered, one of the conservators said when they were doing the rehab project 15 years ago, they said, you know, we view this flag as a metaphor for the country. It's tattered and it's torn, but it still survives. And survival is the story. The flag survives as the country survives. And that motivated oh, them. Yeah. And once I read that quote, that made it motivated, motivated me through my research and writing. Oh, absolutely. And and. As any uh, historian and author knows, you have to do a lot of original research to get something completed and interesting. Yeah. As as you went through the archives at uh, Fort McHenry and, and and Smithsonian, what sort of things did you bump into and go, "Well, that I wasn't expecting." Yeah, yeah. With the Smithsonian, and I think sometimes people, when you when you start to re- you're a little intimidated when you're nobody like me and you're calling the Smithsonian saying, "I'm doing this book," and, and uh, but they're they're excited something because nobody ever asks them. I don't think anybody had been in the Star Spangled Banner archives there for a long time. Uh, I was able to obtain their 400-page file on the donation of the anthem and everything that that it had to go through to get there, and and to be to be preserved. Uh, so at Fort McHenry, those folks had so much information. At Smithsonian, you're dumb. You're looking at letters that you know, actual letters that were passed in wills. You feel these. Those of us who love history, you touch a historic document, and your hands almost shake. But the the biggest one, I, and this wasn't part of the main book, but I, I wrote it about in an appendix. I tracked down some direct descendants of George Armistead, his second great grandson and third great grandson. They were living in Philadelphia. I wrote them a cold letter. They said, "Come over to our house." I was excited. I went, and they had they some some of their family photos are in this book. They they really were generous with their with their information and their items. But I'm going to the bathroom in their house. We we're there for a couple of hours and I'm walking down the steps, typical zigzag staircase where you hang high school diplomas and little league pictures. And I look at these three things in frames. It looked a little odd. And I, I leaned closer and they're signed by John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison. Oh, geez. <laughs> they, they were George Armistead's original U.S. Army commissions in their house in Philadelphia. And I said, Harry, you, you can't have these things in your house. And, and I said, and I was up there I, by the bathroom. I, I saw the replica painting of George from 1816. The, 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 the original's in the Smithsonian. He said, no, no. The, the, the Smithsonian has a replica. That's the original 1816 painting. Oh, These things were in their home. And I talked to them. I said, look, you guys can do whatever you want, but you might want to consider donating these things to the Smithsonian. And they were interested. So I, I put them in contact with my contact at the Smithsonian, Jennifer Jones. They were ecstatic at the Smithsonian. And they did, they did the authentication process. And it took a little longer because it was during COVID. But they authenticated all four items. And those items have now been donated to the smithsonian so well, that, that way they're it's, protected it's, not the real, yeah. it, it's really cool that you feel part of me i'm really proud that not that i did anything great but because of that connection those items will be preserved for a long time well, and i tell you, you shake a little when you look at something signed by thomas jefferson or john adams it's like wow yeah that's uh discovering some real history there it, it's yeah. interesting that uh and, and i think i now have the explanation but confirm it for me there's there when you have photos of the flag 
this original flag there's a star that's missing was that yeah. one of the things that was uh, cut away and given to somebody as a uh, a remembrance yes. of the battle yes yes and it remains a mystery to this day i have a little speculation of a theory in an appendix but i don't know any more than anybody else i just had an idea yet all, the only things that we have is is um George's wife, George Armistead's wife was Louisa, and her daughter was Georgiana, obviously named for her father. And, and George, we know a lot of the history from Georgiana, but she, um, what she, all she said was that her mother told her it was given to some, quote, some important person. That's all we have. They cut out one of the stars. So you have to imagine, this is a pretty important person that cut away the star, but there's no record of anybody ever having it. There's no record of it, it resurfacing again. So we, we don't really know. And, and, and often, it, once again, people will look at that flag and think that happened because a bomb went through it. They think it's a bomb hole. But it wasn't. The Armistead ladies cut it out. Interesting. Uh, okay, veteran radio listeners, we're talking to Tom McMillan, who uh, just wrote, Our flag was still there. And we're talking about the original Star-Spangled Banner that uh, survived the British at uh, Fort McHenry. And and the new mystery is the missing star that was cut (laughs) out of this flag. And if you're walking down a hallway towards a bathroom and you see this star uh, in, uh, in in a frame on a wall with that notation on it, Call Tom. You want the rest of the story, don't you, Tom? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Smithsonian would love to have it. And in, interestingly, uh, there's all kinds of stitches added and removed to the flag. Can you give, give us yeah. what's going yeah. on? Well, there, you know, people over time, technology changes, methodology changes. And people, you know, we look at things that happened 100 years ago. We say, why did they do that? Well, that's what that's what they did back then. In 1914, uh, it's at the Smithsonian now. It's been there for about seven years, and the flag's not in great shape. And they're thinking, we need to do something to preserve it. What had happened when it, when, uh, it was first photographed in 1873 because of a military man. A military man in Boston, uh, Commodore George Preble, had written a book on the history of the U.S. flag, and he could never figure out what happened to the flag from Fort McHenry. And he wrote, it might be, he heard it was rolled up in a ball uh, in a corner of Fort McHenry, and that brought Armistead's daughter, Georgiana, out of the woodwork. She writes him an angry letter, how dare you, I have the flag. But they become friends, and they write letters back and forth. And he says, if you send a flag to me at the Boston Naval Yard, I'll put it up and take a photo of it. So she does. She puts it in the crate and sends it to him on the train. But he gets it out. He pulls it out, and it's so weak, he knows it needs a backing. They need to get some strength. He's in a naval yard. So they, they sew an old ship sail to the flag, and they hang it up against a building and take a photo. That's the photo that's the cover of my book. And people look at it, and it looks backwards. It is backwards. It's because, for reasons we'll never know, they sewed that sail to the front of the flag. Oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> so as a result, and we don't know why, as a result, the, that flag was displayed backward for more than 100 years. And when they were rehabbing it again in the Smithsonian in 1914, the ladies there who, who, who were the experts wanted to take the sail off. They thought it was too heavy. They added a much lighter backing of Irish linen, but they put one, they put it on the wrong side again, and they attached it with 1.7 million stitches. 
Oh, and my. the modern curator said, I can't, I can't believe they put 1.7 million stitches in the flag. So there's a later in the, the year 2000, when they're finally working on this final rehab project, I have a photo in there of ladies suspended on, on machines over the flag, taking out those stitches one by one. They had to take 1.7 million stitches out. It took them 10 months just to get the stitches out. Yeah, so it, you know, it, it wasn't a, this is the sort of amazing stuff that goes on that we never know about, right? That, you never, you, that, you, you don't, and it's. But it, the great part of that story was, as they were working, they didn't want the flag not to be on display in some way to the public. So the eight years they worked on the flag, it was worked on in front. You could go and, and watch them, so you can see a little bit of the flag, and they're working on it. And the the chief conservator said one day they were doing it; they were working on the stitches, and she said. Uh, I looked up and there was a multi-generational family. The older gentleman seemed to be uh, World War II generation. And I went back to work and I looked up about 20 seconds later and he's standing at attention saluting me. And she said, you know, when you've been doing this for five or six hours and your back's aching, your knees are aching, your shoulders are aching, that's why you're doing it. You're doing it for the American public. So those workers were motivated by people, including this one man, probably a former soldier saluting them for doing this work on the stitches. But all that work, it just amazed me over 200 years, these people working who wouldn't have known each other because it's over centuries. So many people chipped in to make sure that flag is still there today. And the one unintended benefit of them covering the front of the flag the wrong way for a hundred years is when you go there now, Jim, it is so bright and it's so bright because the front of the flag was covered for a hundred years. Right. So that's the one benefit now. But when people look at the, uh, I, I've always, I heard people always give me on social media, why is the flag backwards? You have it the wrong way. No, that's just, it's all part of the story of this amazing flag. Well, uh, that gentleman who stood and saluted uh, represents the millions of men and women who are veterans who have saluted the flag and and been willing to die for this country yes. and, and, and that battle standard of the flag and that continues on today. So this is a really important piece of history and we're really thankful that we got a chance to talk to Tom McMillan here at Tom that you'd spend a little time explaining to us all the research of some of the interesting facts and why folks ought to go out and, and get a copy of your book, Our Flag Was Still There. Where can they find more about the book and more about the, the writing and work that you're doing, Tom? Yeah, Jim, it's, it's, I have a website, authortommcmillan.com, but the book's available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Those are the easiest ways to get it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a person who loves the printed copy of a book, but so many now sell on Audible and Kindle, so you can get it uh, in, in all the formats. Yeah, I'd rather have a hard copy myself. I agree with you, Tom. Tom, thanks for taking some time with Veterans Radio today. Jim, it's been my pleasure and my honor, and uh, have a great day, and uh, wish that all to your audience as well. Thank you. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and internet radio shows by visiting us at veteransradio.org. That's veteransradio.org. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. 
They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, NVBDC.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level, and continue to support keeping Veterans Radio on the air. And until next time, you are dismissed. <laughs>